Welcome to The Bunker Daily with me, Nina Schick. Uh, I'm a political broadcaster and author focusing on how technology is reshaping politics and society. My own book, Deepfakes and Lymphocalypse, is coming out next month and is relevant to the many themes which we'll be discussing today. If in the early 90s, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, you'd have said that only two decades later, liberal democracy itself, the model of freedom, would be in danger, few people would have taken you seriously. Since then, successive failed wars in the Middle East, the global financial crisis, an increasingly isolationist America, and the fracturing of the transatlantic alliance have been slowly chipping away at the notion that we had come to the end of history with the defeat of communism. 20 years into the new millennium, populists and strongmen are in power across the world. On the right, the cabal of right-wing strongmen from Trump to Orban. On the left, the failed experiment with communism continues to destroy countries such as Venezuela. Across the political spectrum, right and left, one thing is certain, liberal democracy, hailed as the ultimate political system only a few decades ago, is in decline. Why is this happening? As my guest today illustrates in her new book, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends, the crisis in free democracies could not have happened without the collaboration of unscrupulous politicians, thinkers, campaigners, and strategists inside those same democracies. She knew some of them, some of them were her friends, and now they've brought the West to its worst crisis since the depths of the Cold War. Anne Applebaum is the multiple award-winning author, of Gulag, A History, and Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, and a columnist for The Atlantic. And she joins me today. Hello, Anne. Welcome to The Bunker. Hi, and thank you. And you live in the UK, the US, and Poland, and you were in Poland when the European borders closed. How was that? Are you able to travel now? Well, it was quite a dramatic moment, actually. Um, I was in the UK when um, my husband was driving down a road in Poland heard the announcement of the border closing on the radio, called me and told me to get on a flight. And the next morning I did. Um, my son, who was in the U.S., also got on a flight. I was on the last flight into the country. He actually arrived after the border closed, had to take a flight to Berlin, take a train to the border, get out and walk across, which was very, um, you know, almost Cold War scene, you know, people walking across a bridge into the country. And the the, the, the border closing in Poland, as in a lot of places, was largely a symbolic act. I mean, you can you can argue in favor of travel restrictions and, and border close and border closings in the context of the pandemic. I mean, it makes it makes sense to do it temporarily. Um, but in Poland, it was what was done to demonstrate we're doing something. We're in charge at a moment when the government was actually panicking because the health service was unprepared and the hospital system was unprepared and so on. There was a lot of you know, loud noise that was made at the beginning of this pandemic that was performative. In other words, people showing, you know, our government is doing something rather than actually doing the complicated, um, uh, you know, things that needed to be done, which demand trust and public participation and so on. Um, but, you know, at the moment, the borders are slowly opening from Poland. You can travel to the rest of Europe now. So um, so so the so the, the crisis is definitely over. Well, and I loved your book, and I think it's so unique in the sense that it uses the for, the stories of your former friends and colleagues to show how intellectuals and politicians willingly went over to conspiracy and nationalism over the past two decades to undermine the values of liberal democracy. Um, it's such a unique take on what is happening to Western liberal democracy. And I just first wanted to kick off by asking you, when did 
you start to notice this was happening. Uh, so, so yes, I mean, the book is partly some, there's some personal, you know, memories. It's not, a, it's not remotely biographical, but it's autobiographical, but there are some stories about people that I've known over the last 20 or 30 years and how they've changed. I mean, I mean, of course it started obviously with me thinking about why I no longer speak to some of my friends. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a, I mean, that was, that was literally the starting point for the, yeah. um, of the, of the idea. And the, the book begins with a description of a party that we gave in 1999, which was the millennium party. And to be clear, it was a fairly scruffy party and it wasn't fancy and there were no caterers and so on, but nor would, nor at that time would you have described the guests as some kind of super elite, but they were, transatlantic. There were a couple American friends, there were some British friends, and there was mostly Polish. Um, And generally, you would have thought that most of the people in the room were, um, at that time, shared the same set of ideas. And I think they did. I mean, they would all have described themselves as anti-communists. They would all have described themselves as center-right. You know, that was the, you know. Um, And they were all kind of looking forward to Poland becoming a member of the European Union and NATO and, uh, you know, and, and so on. Um, at, you know, 20 years later, the party, the, the guests at that party have split very dramatically. They're on completely opposite sides of a, of an argument in, in Poland, which is a very, very polarized country. Um, and to some extent, you know, in, in, in other countries too. And I, you know, and I began by thinking, well, there was one friend in particular who I began thinking about, okay, what happened to her and why did she change? You know, or did I change, of course? Um, and the book was in a sort of elaborate attempt to answer that question. You know, what was it that she felt was missing from the system? Why did she turn against it? Um, what interests did she have in doing so? What gains has she made from the new system? And it was thinking through that that I think was the um, the beginning of the book. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people talk about politics in this very abstract way. You know, political scientists in particular, but journalists do it too, you know, this kind of you know, as if nobody is, you know, there are these big changes happening and we do lots of polling about them and we, you know, we we make broad generalizations about them. And there's not, an, I don't think there's quite enough time spent looking at who are the people who brought this change about, you know, who are the mm. people working to achieve it? What are their motives and what is their interests in, in bringing, in making the change happen? And the, and the book is partly about that. What What are people's interests? What's moving them? What do you think makes these intellectuals, these people who you discuss partly in the book, willing to go over to anti-intellectualism, nationalism, political dishonesty and conspiracy? What what did you find as you asked yourself why your friend had changed and you hadn't or if you had changed? So so the book gives a range of answers. There isn't one answer to this question. And to be clear, it's also not a policy book. There's no list of prescriptions at the end about what we should do. Um, but there's there's a range of answers. Um, in in Poland, part of the answer has to do with people who felt that they, you know, they'd been part of the anti-communist movement. You know, the system had changed, and there were a lot of people though who were dissatisfied with the change. This is and this, by the way, the book is about is not about voters or everybody in Poland. It's about a very small group of intellectuals and sort of people who became propagandists for the for the current Polish government. And there were a lot of people who felt that they had not achieved as much as they thought they should have achieved. They were, you know, they hadn't been rewarded for their bravery in the 1980s or whatever it was. Um, and they began to turn against the system. 
And so, you know, and I write a little bit about also um, how for some of them, there was also an appeal to this alternative system. So the the political system that's developing in Poland, I mean, it's still in a it's still in a transition, um, is one towards what the current ruling party would like to be a kind of one party state where there's really only one political party and the, that party decides who gets to succeed in business, who succeeds in journalism, who succeeds in culture, you know, who wins the who wins the various competitions that we've set up um, in our meritocratic or or, you know, or semi-meritocratic societies. And instead of having competitions, they would like these things to be decided according to the rule of party loyalty. They were loyal. You know, why aren't they rewarded? And that's a very important motive um, in for a lot of people in a lot of places. You know, they see if you can change the political system, then you and you are part of that change, then you're then the beneficiary of it. I give some very, you know, that sounds, you know, very... Um, that sounds a little vague, but in the book, there are some very, very concrete examples of people um, who seem to have made that decision on those grounds. I and mean, the most famous one is the current chair of Polish television, um, state state television, which is now a kind of um, propaganda arm of the ruling party. Um, and his brother is the editor of the main liberal newspaper. And so, you know, the, there's a long chapter explaining why they made different choices at different times. So that, you know, that's one reason. I mean, another, though, very important reason is one that I describe, I talk about the phenomenon of cultural despair and the phenomenon of nostalgia. The feeling that many people I know had in the 90s um, and, and to this day, actually, of despair that our societies are degenerate. They are coming to an end. They are they are, you know, we are we are producing mediocrities for leaders. There are no great men anymore. That impulse, which was very very deep, actually, in the British Tory party, and I describe a couple mm-hmm. of the Tory thinkers who who felt that way, as well as some Americans. You know, that's also an important motive for change. You know, I mean, if you really feel that, you know, as for example, Roger Scruton did about England, you know, that your country is dead or dying, you know, mm-hmm. then you know, then it needs really desperate measures to save it. Um, it needs dramatic change and you know, political change, um, and that I think has has also you know, in, in, inspired a lot of people, you know, but, but there's, there's another, you know, important set of reasons, which um, might be interesting to you, given your background, um, which are really to do with the nature of modern discourse and the way in which there is this sense people have of cacophony, you know, that, that you know, the sort of people shouting at one another on social media, shouting at each other on TV, um, you know, and that in all this, you know, and the democracy is incompetent mm. now, can't cope with all these different views and so on. And, you know, someone needs to cut through all this noise and impose some silence. And so there's a, there is a kind of authoritarian impulse, both that some of the people in my book have and that, you know, that, that others have as well. There are also a lot of people out there who are seeking to promote and spread this authoritarian impulse to kind of make use of it. Um, you can see Donald Trump doing it, for example, when he tweets the phrase law and order. You know, what's he doing that for? That's in order to, you know, for people who are afraid or they're hearing a lot of dissension or they're watching riots on TV. You know, this is meant to give them the sense that I can silence it. I can make everyone shut up. Um, and that's an, that's another piece of the story. But, you know, but those are there. There, there are some other examples and motives described as well. You one of the just tying on to that, you talk about the the fear of complexity amongst voters. And if we just seg from how the world is increasingly going to become more complex and you know, we're probably 
if you look at technological progress ahead of one of the periods of bigger societal and political disruption, how does that fit into this dark picture of the twilight of democracy in your view? I mean, there is a real question as to whether democracies can cope with this level of complexity, especially our unreformed democracies in the United States based on an 18th century constitution, um, in Britain based on a you know collection of decisions made over the last couple of centuries. You know, can we, are we able to be nimble enough to respond to the new kinds of challenges? Um, I mean, one of the challenges that we haven't faced, for example, is the challenge of disinformation, whether it's foreign disinformation, which we all got upset about a couple of years ago, or domestic disinformation, um, or the, you know, people who are trying to push and shape the um, narratives on social media, which then get reflected in other kinds of media. So far, the answer is no. Democracies have not managed to get together to talk about what a um, democratic internet would look like, as opposed to, for example, a Chinese authoritarian internet, which we already know what that looks like. That's that's being set up at with great speed, you know. Or 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 the question of why haven't democracies been able to deal with the phenomenon of money laundering and offshore banking, which have seen you know literally billions of dollars you know seep out of our political system and everybody else's political systems to live on, go and live in virtual banks in in the Caribbean or elsewhere. Why haven't we been able to control that? Why haven't we been able to clamp down? I mean, I mean, that's all made possible by laws that we wrote, you know, so why can't we write them differently? And it seems like democracies right now aren't coping well with these big challenges that come from, from globalization, essentially, you know, from the global, you know, the internet is now a global space. Anybody can enter the politics of anybody else's country on it. Banking is now a global space. And we haven't, we haven't yet managed to, you know, even to make those central, the the central political issues that they should be. So yeah, without, without, you know, without leadership that's really dedicated to solving some of these kinds of problems, I, I do think democracy is in trouble. Absolutely. Your your book covers, um, you know, it covers a huge territory, both Poland, the US and the UK. Just going back to to the book for a second in Poland, you write about the Smolensk crash that killed the Polish president, um, Kuczynski, and how it became the founding conspiracy of law and justice in Poland. Why do you think conspiracy has become so politically powerful in this moment across across the Western world? I, you know, the, the, the Smolensk conspiracy theory, just for those who don't know it, is uh, there was a plane crash in 2010 that, as you say, killed the po- president of Poland, who happens to be the twin brother, was the twin brother, of the current leader of the Polish ruling party. And the, his, the, the brother, the one who, who remains alive, you know, even though in the immediate weeks after the crash, people accepted that it was an accident, um, but in the months that followed, he began to create a kind of political community around the idea that the crash was, it's never really been clear who caused it, but it had something to do with the then government, which was the, you know, the, the opposition party now. Um, maybe it was the Russians, you know, and there were kind of dozens of theories that were created and so on. And he created a kind of community of belief around this theory, um, which was probably, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the country. And once you do that, though, once you get people attracted to the idea that there's a terrible secret and everybody in the state, you know, the government, the, you know, the, the bureaucrats, um, the army, everybody is covering it up and all of the media is covering it up. 
And the truth can only be found out, you know, if we can elect this different group of people into power. Um, and once you once you bring people around to that point of view, um, once you create this profound sense of distrust, you know, that gives you then, you, the, you know, the, the basis for um, a political movement. And I, you know, I think I think the the attraction of conspiracy now is partly the to do with the way in which we get and process information now. I mean, we all see things on our phones. We see, you know, political news and then an advertisement for hairspray and then something about a celebrity and then the weather report and then another piece of political news and sort of how serious there's no hierarchy anymore, how seriously to take things. Now that everything is virtual, the sense of what is real and what isn't real is really disappearing. Um, And the ease with which you can now, as I say, create kind of communities of distrust, you know, pulling together people who feel suspicious for a variety of reasons around one of these themes um, has become much easier than it was in the past. And we've seen the way in which conspiracies are used in politics in, in Poland and Hungary and the United States um, to some degree in Britain uh, as, as well. I mean, almost, you know, in almost every country in Europe now, there's a, you know, there's a strong anti-vax movement, for example, which yeah. operates using conspiracy theories. Um, there are strong sort of anti-established movements which operate using conspiracy theories. Um, and, I, you know, I do think they're the, in some ways, the primary organizing mode of contemporary politics. The book is so timely right now, ahead of the U.S. election, um, and it's a really hard and sobering read. Um, given what we've already discussed about, you know, how the information ecosystem is changing, how politics itself is changing, the kind of technological prowess, which is completely transforming politics as well. What's your view? Is there a way back from the precipice or do we just think that liberal democracy as we know it is no longer fit for purpose? So I just wrote something about this for a, um, as an afterword to a collection of articles that's being published by The Atlantic magazine in the fall. Look, there are previous previous moments in American history, um, if we just talk about the United States for a second, mm-hmm. um, where there, you know, where that felt like similarly profound moments of crisis. Um, and we all talk about the Great Depression and the, the 1930s. But there's another moment, which is at the beginning of the 20th century, when we had, you know, really profound inequality um, and we had very angry, you know, the beginnings of the trade union movement and 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 you know, real violence um, following strikes. And that was a moment when there was also a very interesting set of reforms carried out. Um, President Theodore Roosevelt, um, end of the 19th century, I should say, beginning of the 20th century, you know, carried out a series of reforms to capitalism. Um, you think of the beginning of the antitrust, the antitrust laws, um, restrictions on monopolies. You know, essentially, this was a moment when some of the rules of capitalism were rewritten to make them fairer. And some of the rules of democracy were rewritten to give more people a voice. And I'm not suggesting that there are kind of direct things that we can do that were done then that can transplant themselves to the 21st century. But that kind of attitude, that way of thinking about politics, that, you know, how do we make capitalism work better for more people? How do we make voting work better for more people? Why are we so wedded to the the particular techniques of democracy that we have that are producing this profound polarization right now? You know, couldn't we, there's, in the U.S., there's a movement to create something called ranked choice voting, which would, um, you know, would, 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 would make the people's political decision making less polarized because they'd vote for more than one candidate and they'd have to think about who their second choices were. Why are we so committed to the idea that our most important forums for political discussion 
are dominated by algorithms written by companies in Silicon Valley whose primary interest is in selling shampoo. Shouldn't we be able to think again about what our public space looks like and how we're going to be able to do it? So I think these are all, there are, you know, there are precedents for very profound reform. You know, there have been moments when whole systems of the way things are done were overhauled. Um, I've just read Angus Dayton's book, which was published a few years ago, uh, which is ostensibly about why so many white Americans are dying early. It's called Deaths of Despair. But it ends actually with a very good, you know, list of ways we could think about doing things differently. He's interested in the U.S. healthcare system and so on. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, what the exact changes are don't matter. But the mood of real reform, I think, is one that, you know, we should, you know, we should adopt. You know, it is possible. It's, there's a, and it's not a 100% possibility, maybe not even a 50% possibility that the election of Joe Biden will give the U.S. an opportunity to make some big changes. But, but, but it's, you know, too early to say. Uh, and uh, I will ask about the United States, obviously, as the leader of the free world and kind of as, you know, wherever the U.S. goes has huge implications for the rest of the Western world. So at this moment, how is it, how important is it to defeat Trump in your view? And even if Trump is defeated, where do we go from there? Where does the Republican Party go from there? Uh, personally, I think whether your concern, as I say, is left-wing authoritarianism or right-wing authoritarianism, whether your concern is climate change or, you know, chaos on the internet, the defeat of Donald Trump is absolutely the most important thing that that needs to happen in order for the world to move forward. Um, I mean, the the impact that that would have, for example, in Poland is quite profound um, on the yes. current the Polish government. Um, you know, the impact it would have on, um, you know, how things have, you know, unfold at the UN on the, on the, on the role of the WHO, on the, the possibility that we, we would be able to have a better international response to the pandemic. You know, all of these issues will be profoundly impacted by a change of policy in the U.S. Um, but the second part of your question is also important. A lot also depends on how he loses, if he loses. I mean, I'm not taking anything for granted. If he's defeated very slightly and it's very close then I'm not sure that his party will conclude that it needs to change itself. And then the next Republican candidate will be, I don't know, Don Trump Jr. or Ivanka, or there's talk of the Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, you know, who, who would run an openly racist political yeah. campaign. So you, then we would still have the possibility of an, of a, of a, um, uh, you know, a kind of authoritarian political party in the United States um, that would still be vying for power. And then, and also that would presume that the, that party then remained in control of the Senate, which would also be, you know, make it, make any idea of profound reform very difficult. I mean, it would certainly be blocked by the Senate. If there is a big victory and if Biden wins by lot, and if um, the Congress is controlled by the Democratic Party, then that gives us two possibilities. One is for real reform and the second is for reform inside the Republican Party. And I've actually talked to a lot of Republicans in recent days. Um, there's a group of them now who, some of whom are my, you know, acquaintances and friends who are campaigning against the president um, very actively. They've formed, there's a one group called the Lincoln Project. There's another one called Republican Voters Against Trump. And their, their motivation is not just to beat Trump, but also to reform their own party and um, to change, you know, to change it from an authoritarian party that seeks to win elections by cheating you know, back into a party that could win a national election by appealing to all Americans. The, you know, the answer to the question depends a lot on what happens in November.
Well, (laughs) we're all on tenterhooks. Um, I just want to take it back to um, Europe and the UK, just as my last question. Uh, Well, last two questions. The first would be how you see Britain's place in the world and, you know, in the dawn of Brexit and in the twilight, in the context of the twilight of democracy. And then finally, uh, given your you know many years of uh, living in Poland, Central and Eastern Europe, your your experiences there, do you think the European project is doomed in the longer term? And those are two huge questions. Um, huge. I know we could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, in Britain, so my book is a little bit about it does contain some some material in Britain, partly because I worked at the Spectator in the nineteen nineties and knew most of the people who later became the Brexiteers. So there is a description of them. Um, you know, look, Brexit was a, you know, was a kind of coup carried out by one part of the elite against the other part of the elite. I mean, let's not, you know, let's not pretend otherwise. You know, but the, the bigger question now is, as the, as the consequences of it become clear, and, and by the way, I was someone who said from the beginning that it will take a decade before anybody understands what Brexit means and how what costs it carried and what position it places the UK in. Um, and so all these arguments, well, you know, this company or that company is or is not deciding to stay in Britain or not, completely meaningless. You know, what, what matters is how this plays out over a while. I mean, my great fear is that um, it leaves Britain, you know, very, very weak and isolated. Um, mm. And the kind of influence that Britain used to have over world politics, which, by the way, I approved of. I mean, this is why um, part of why I was a, you know, I was I would have, you know, I was a Tory journalist in the 1990s. You know, I really believed in the UK as a liberal, international, pro-democratic force. And I wanted it to continue being that. Um, and so my sadness about Brexit is that the Brexit has inevitably made the UK more provincial, more inward looking less influential in the rest of the world. Um, and it's also, of course, weakened the European project, which could play that role um, if it wanted to as well. So my, my, my worry about Britain is that, you know, we still have a decade of internal, internal, internally looking politics, um, rising provincialism, um, deep, deep divisions in the country between Scotland and England, for example, um, mm. that will continue to have an impact in politics, um, resentment by people who feel... Um, who feel cheated by the politics of the last, you know, of the last several years, not only Brexit, but the failure of the Labour Party to um, to contest Brexit. Um, but, you know, it's, it, you know, let's wait and see what happens in January, how the, how the, what, what looks like it will be a hard Brexit, how that impacts the country. I hope to be wrong. I, you know, I really hope to be proven wrong. The European Union is a, is a, you know, it's such a complicated beast. One of the strange things about the European Union is that its main problem is not the main one that's described in Britain. In other words, the problem is not that it takes away the sovereignty of all of its member states. The problem is is that it doesn't do enough. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't have a big enough voice in the outside world. It doesn't have a unified foreign policy. It doesn't have a defense policy. And therefore, it doesn't, although it is an international power in regulation, which is true, and it has a voice in international trade, it doesn't have a big voice in the other geopolitical areas that matter. Um, and this is why, you know, we're, as the world, tur- you know, as we're starting some big competition between the U.S. and China, you know, the EU, which should be playing a big role, isn't. Because, as right. I say, in effect, it's still 27 different countries. Um, and the, the, the idea that it's some kind of super state is actually not true. 
Um, no. So, so, you know, so my worry about the EU is not that it's, you know, some kind of dominating bureaucracy. You know, my, my worry is that it's going to be too silent and ineffective and that it isn't able to marshal its, I mean, it's as, as, as an entity, it's the biggest economy in the world. And yet as a geopolitical force, it's puny. Um, and it hasn't, you know, it does, it's not, it's not even so much that it doesn't, you know, push for liberal democracy. It doesn't really push for anything. You know, it's not really um, known for anything. Again, one of my great regrets about Britain leaving is that I always wanted Britain to play a role in creating EU defense and foreign policy, which, you know, at one point it looked like it could do. Um, but obviously that's not going to happen now either. No. Well, well, let's be very interesting to see what happens with the future of the transatlantic alliance. And thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure to have you. Um, the Twilight of Democracy is published on Tuesday, 21st July by Alan Lane. So order it right now. And <laughs> we you. like to ask our guests. <laughs> and we like to ask, uh, it's very good. Um, we like to ask our guests for their escape routes from politics, the books, TV, music, or films that are taking their minds off reality and making it bearable. What's your escape route at the moment? So we are watching a French television series called The Bureau, which is about um, the French Secret Service. And it sounds silly, but it is fantastically acted um, and, you know, brilliantly gripping. Um, recommend that to everybody. Um, that and the novels of William Trevor, which I read some years ago and I've picked up again and have remembered how exquisite they are. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on The Bunker. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays with the main panel podcast on Wednesdays. And you can get the podcast early and without adverts, plus Smart Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nina Schick and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.